Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do. Where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, we got a lot of, or I have a lot of movies to get to. I've had a no. busy couple of weeks. Uh, fairly busy. I got 12 movies, still falling short of my one a day. Yeah. Uh, too short. Well, I know you day, take yeah. a movie Sabbath uh, <laughs> as well, so. I did, yeah. I went to, out of town for a couple of days to visit um, my uh, um, my sister-in-law uh, and nephew, Um Got a got a nasty uh, skateboarding. My nephew's a fourteen year old yeah. skateboarding enthusiast. I was never a skateboarder, <laughs> and so decided this is the right. At thirty six years old in the in my uh, sister in law's driveway, this is the time to learn sure. how to skateboard. I fell off a few times. It was mostly like I could get on a skateboard, which is actually at thirty six years old more difficult than it sounds. I could see that, but I mastered getting on a skateboard. I mastered going. Sure. It yeah. was really the stopping that what I would fall. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, apparently, I was just trying to. I was like, essentially, like slamming on the brakes when you're supposed to stop a little more gradually. Got and it. So a couple times, took a spill. So tore up my right elbow, as you can see, Tyler. Um, there's no. This isn't a Patreon episode, so yeah. the admirals can't see. Oh, uh, I wish I couldn't. But, I um, feel like a a rookie cop. I'm about to go throw up in the corner. Yeah. But I also, I think, I bruised a rib uh, based wow. on my googling. Um, of what? Because I was like, I don't have any actual bruising. Like, there's no discoloration on my skin, mm-hmm. but it feels very tender. It hurts to take deep breaths yeah. or yawns or sneezes. It hurts if I stretch too much. Um, yeah, my boss. One of my bosses uh, was in the. Uh, uh, she's shorter than I am. It was in the in the. Uh, break room at work and she needed a new roll of paper towels and she couldn't reach them so she was like uh david can you reach those paper towels and so in one move i reached my arm up which pulled my ribbon hurt Ugh. and whacked my elbow on the open <laughs> cabinet door so it reopened my skin so i was like she would and then like, you stumbled into a bowling alley and went flying down the lane yeah so like I was like, sure, I can get those. Oh, 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 and suddenly I'm like crouched over and bleeding. I just trying to grab paper towels. Getting old, man. Uh, all right. Though I didn't plan on going down, down that uh, road, but that's all why I, I'm two movies short of my goal. Anyway, um, I'm going to start with uh, uh, Shot Factory slash Scream Factory. Um, do you feel like that's like... I sh- you should say Scream Factory because it's not just branding. It is a different team. It is, yeah. Yeah, so I should give them... It's not just Shot Factory exists and they release all their horror stuff as Scream. Like, Scream Factory is its own team at Shout. I know this from the Comic-Con panels. Yeah. Because they're there and they, they do a whole separate thing. So I and should they, say Scream, but I always forget. Yeah, I mean, they seem to have a different set of priorities, not to suggest one is better than the other, but it's like they always have like this beautiful new art. Uh, box art and Shout Factory doesn't really... Uh, certainly Shout Factory... Uh, Shout Select doesn't. Um, yeah, and, but Scream doesn't always have the... Because, they, yeah, they do beautiful art when they do the um, sleeves. Yeah. But a lot, of the, a lot of these don't. They just re- reprint the excuse me, like original one sheet or whatever, which is fine because I like these. But they've been putting out a lot of Hammer horror movies lately. We've reviewed a bunch of them. Uh, The only one of them that I watched and reviewed is 1966's The Reptile, directed by John Gilling. Um, And this is very... I haven't seen that much Hammer, but my understanding, this is very Hammer in the sense that it is sort of uh, Victorian gothic. It's kind of... uh, uh, takes place in 
old, like well-appointed, but kind of rundown mansions. The colors are verging on gaudy, but still kind of like rich and, and, um, and, uh, foreboding. Uh, and and basically this, uh, the reptile is about a man uh, at the the very beginning. We see a, a wealthy man come home to his mansion and he's attacked by a creature and killed. And, then uh, that's sort of the epilogue and then uh, uh, so is this some kind of big bird uh, <laughs> um, we'll see you'll okay. see um, and then so his brother and his wife come to town to move in to take over the estate and the entire town is like get out of here we don't like you or whatever um, or we don't want you here it was very very Stephen King-ish sort yeah. of uh, uh, although pre-Stephen King um, uh, but it had the feel of one of those kind of stories where no one would be nice to him because they probably because they're all scared because this thing has been killing people. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, and so then it just becomes like a, a, it's a, it's a pretty like low body count horror movie. Um, but it's heavy on atmosphere. Mm. Uh, it's got the sort of like misty graveyards. Um, it's got the one friendly, uh, uh, pub keeper, uh, publican is the actual name uh, for that job. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, he's the one guy who will talk to the the new guy, and then there's the mysterious doctor who lives in town, who's not that kind of doctor, it turns out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's more like it's a horror movie, but it's much more of like a mystery. Um, that sounds wonderful. Uh, than than a horror, and then of course it does have a big sort of horror type climax. I really enjoyed it. It's it's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, speaking of new Blu-rays that are out, I watched a movie. Oh man, um, that I uh, I didn't know this director. You might because you know a little bit more about Soviet stuff than I do. But sure. based on my research, it seems like this guy has been repeatedly undervalued. Okay, because we know, you know Eisenstein. Sure, but this is Frederick Ermler. Okay, and the movie that I watched is from 1929. It's called Fragment of an Empire, and it is amazing. Uh, it is, I mean, it's also like so many movies of the time, complete Soviet, like propaganda. Oh, propaganda. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's part of like, um, part of the reason maybe he's not as well remembered is because that's his, his, based on what I was reading that his works were very much like even more so than Eisenstein's very much like propagandistic. And so when the uh, Soviet Union went away, sort of that, his stuff didn't, uh, you know, didn't survive beyond, but it's too bad that it was just associated with just the propaganda arm because it's an absolutely beautiful, incredibly sad, um, but ultimately very happy, uh, movie happy. If you like, you know, socialism, (laughs) Um, but it, uh, it's 1929 takes place in 1929, but the main character is someone who was shell shocked into amnesia during the first world war. Mm. Um, in, in, in 1917. Um, and then, so he spends 12 years not knowing who he is working as a farmhand or whatever. Uh, and then he has this traumatic experience at the farm and suddenly he gets his memory back. And so basically you're seeing this Russian citizen discover what it's 12 years of the Soviet, like the Soviet union, you know, 12 years of the USSR. Um, and, he's just discovering it all for the first time. And I think what's really 
smart about the movie and, and what justifies the, the sort of like two hour runtime is it isn't just him immediately going, Oh, things are better now. And going right. from place to place going like, huh, this is better now. This is better now. Like he maybe eventually comes to that conclusion, but a lot of the movie is very sad because he's confused. Yeah. He doesn't, it, it, it takes some adjustment, you know, when he gets, he gets a job and he's still sort of, uh, uh, you know, what's sort of like, kowtowing subservient to the, mm-hmm. the overseers because he thinks of them as like masters and like his fellow employees are like, no, there are no masters anymore. This is, uh, you know, if you have a problem, you know, you can, uh, you can voice your opinion and all, like all, all these things. Uh, and so, uh, I think, but I think the movie and the, um, uh, the actor's name, so why am I not better at having this ready? Right. Uh, the actor's name is Fyodor Nikitin, and he's clearly a serious actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's really selling the 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 sadness. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it's really good. And then I, I actually haven't. It's weird. There's a level of propaganda that I don't want to give away. Like it's not just about. It has mm-hmm. like the words "fragment of an empire" end up having a more specific meaning. Oh, interesting. Um, I'll say what it is because I. Uh, um, uh, the idea that so as he um, becomes more accustomed and more embracing of of what uh, Russia has become, he comes to realize that there are people who maybe pay lip service to it, but are still dependent or still thinking the old ways of thought. And so really mm. the ultimate message of this is like, be wary of people who are only superficial revolutionaries and their, their hearts are still in the past. They're the fragment of the empire. I see. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, but it's, I mean, yeah, the, the propaganda is what it is, but, uh, did I just say it is what it is? I've been listening to many interviews with athletes. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, but did the director, did he come to play? <laughs> yeah. Do you got to give him credit? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You hate to see it. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's so beautifully, beautifully made. Uh, I would definitely recommend checking out and it's a, it's a flicker alley Blu-ray. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you're getting the best, uh, the best quality possible. Um, next up, I watched the movie. Now, you know, I have, lists of movies that I bounce between in certain orders. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's going to be some random thing from like 2002 or something like no, that. Here's what it is, is I can't tell you why I put this movie on my list. All right. But I can tell you when I put this movie on my list because I watched <laughs> 1945's Christmas in Connecticut. Okay. Um, uh, which uh, I've been trying, uh, this is going back years, but, uh, you and I got raked over the coals years ago by, um, some of our listeners for being uh, sort of woefully unfamiliar with the filmography of Barbara Stanwyck. Yes. And yes. so I've, over the past few years, I've watched more uh, Barbara Stanwyck uh, movies. Uh, and so I decided to watch Christmas in Connecticut, um, directed by Peter Godfrey, starring Barbara Stanwyck and Dennis Morgan. Uh, and also um, Sydney Greenstreet has a large role. Nice. And most importantly, one of my favorite character actors of the era, S.Z. Sakal. Um, you will know him if you look okay. him up. It's I'm looking him up now. Initials S.Z. Um, and then Sakal is S-A-K-A-L-L. Um, and he's a delightful presence. But uh, the, Oh, him. Oh, yes, he's delightful. Yeah. Uh, but Christmas in Connecticut is just... It feels dumb to 
to to uh, to slam the movie for being corny, but it just it never quite lifts off. It has a it has a pretty good premise where so Dennis Morgan is a, a war hero, um, and he uh, while he's recovering in bed, he he he. Uh, he oh yeah it starts out he can't he can only eat liquid foods because he was starving to death when he was rescued hmm. um, uh, and so he's he he and his nurse he, like talk they read recipes to like sort of this is what I'm gonna eat when I and so they come with this, become obsessed with this this uh, newspaper columnist who's kind of like a Martha Stewart type she writes these columns about housekeeping and and uh and living on uh you know interior decorating in this big beautiful farm in connecticut that Mm -hmm. she lives on and she writes recipes and and talks about like child care and stuff like that uh and so the owner of the magazine sydney green street green street um uh finds out yeah, uh, uh, about this this war hero's obsession and, and arranges for him to be invited to Christmas dinner at the columnist farm. What we find out at this point is that she lives in a studio apartment walk-up in New York City, and this is all just a character that she and her editor have created together. Oh, fun. And if Sidney Greenstein's character finds out, they're both going to get fired. So basically she accepts a marriage proposal from a rich guy <laughs> who has a farm in Connecticut, <laughs> This really kicks up a notch. Yeah. And who has a housekeeper who has a baby. Okay. And so they go and pretend to, to be, but then he, she actually is supposed to marry this guy. But then when the war hero shows up, they hit it off. And so she keeps trying to like find farcical ways to put off marrying the guy over the course of this Christmas weekend while wooing, uh, um, Dennis Morgan. Yeah, it's it's a fun yeah. it's a fun plot. Uh, unfortunately, it just never really uh, lifts off. And I, I definitely think there's something about you know uh, um, Scott and Julie and I. When we did our TCM wrap up episode. We talked about these old romantic comedies and how like it's a different type of chemistry when it really works and, sure. it, and it, you don't see it anymore. And I just think Barbara Stanwyck is great as she is. She's got great chemistry with Gary Cooper and Ball of Fire. Um, but she and Dennis Morgan, it just doesn't work. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't ever really uh, buy it, and and the movie just kind of drags uh, a little bit. But you've got uh, S. Z. Sakal is um, her. She's he's the chef owner at a restaurant that's on the ground floor below her walk oh, okay. of apartment, and she convinces him to come to the cabin or to the farm for the weekend to do all the cooking so she can pass it off Got it. as her cooking. And he is by far the best part oh, of, sure. of, of the movie. There is also a part. I always enjoy Sydney seeing uh, Sydney green street as well. Yeah, he's good. Um, there's also a part of the, uh, the, the person she decides to marry the actor's name is Reginald Gardner. And he had the only real laugh out loud m- moment in the film for me. And it's such a tiny little moment but this is a farce, right? Mm-hmm. And so S.C. Sakal is kind of like trying to keep, he's keeping these people over in the kitchen, these people in the living room, he's keeping the other woman in the, in the den to try and keep them from crossing paths so before his, like, so his plan can be pulled off. And so there's a part where he and Sydney, S.C. Sakal, Sydney Greenstreet, and Reginald Gardner, who is the owner of the house they're in, mm-hmm. are listening at the kitchen door to try to figure out what's going on there. And the woman that he has to ask in the den comes out of the living room and is like, excuse me? And at, at this moment, you realize that Reginald Gardner, who owns the house, has no idea who this woman is or that there was even someone in the other room and he just goes 
Oh, dear God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, uh, I think you're more subtle than that. You're you're selling this to me, uh, and and I think I might like it more than you did. Uh, Yeah, because I'm I'm focusing on the good parts, I think. Okay. Um, uh, it's yeah, it's not a, it's not an awful movie, but uh, all right. Speaking of movies that aren't good, okay, but have good in the title. In this case, I saw Good Boys, the, yeah. new, the new comedy, which I uh, I'll be honest, I didn't have my hopes up, and it uh, uh, kind of. I mean, it's something about I, I watched the trailer after because I hadn't watched the trailer, and um, it's a shame when a movie is exactly what the trailer promises in some way. In some ways, I'm I, that's a film that Jen and I, we saw the trailer for it, I think when we saw crawl and I was just uh, aghast, not, uh, not because it's like, Oh, offensive. It's, it no. wasn't that it was just like, so I guess we've moved on from like old people getting high to young people saying inappropriate things as far as, can you believe what this age group is doing? Yeah. It just seems like such a lazy there's a way to do it, I'm yeah, sure. The, but no, and the way to do it uh, would be to make them real characters. That's mm-hmm. why Superbad works yeah. as well and endures as much as it does. Because um, I believe in the journey, I believe in the characters. This is, to, uh, I would say, to the movie's credit, the title is not ironic. Part of the joke is not that they're like, oh, you think they're good, but they're like bad. Right. Like, you know, kids who are little little pervs or whatever. Like, these are like the nerdy, like, good kids and so it becomes right so some of that is funny especially um uh, i think keith l williams is his name he was um uh jasper on last man on earth if you watched i'm not sure how far into the last man on earth you could do you remember there being a kid on last man on earth no so you didn't get that far no. i think he shows him season three okay so. um anyway he's uh uh he's hilariously good like well behaved mm. uh, to the point where he gets them in trouble because he can't lie to authority uh, figures. So yeah, there's some funny stuff, but here's the thing. The main thing is that this movie, the premise, good kids talk dirty yeah. is actually as deep as it goes. It really felt like, uh, and this is what I put in my, in my review. It felt like a funnier die or college humor, like parody trailer for a movie. Sure except feature length. It never goes any deeper than that first, Hmm. that first premise. Um, then there aren't enough funny jokes to, to sustain it. There are a couple of funny sequences. Um, yeah, the one where Keith Williams can't lie to the cop is very funny. Um, uh, and then there's a a sequence when they have to go to a frat house to buy drugs. It's a very convoluted story. Yeah. Uh, cause these are good kids who never do drugs. Sure. Um, but they have to go to a frat house to buy drugs and that's actually a pretty funny sequence. Um, uh, and pretty well, uh, staged and edited actually. Um, anyway, uh, the best, um, the best performances in the movie aren't even the, 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 the three boys. It's, um, their, their neighbors, um, two teenage girls and one of them okay. is molly gordon who was just in um book smart did you watch did you book smart? uh and the other one is named midori francis i don't know who she is but they're they're terrific together and they're they're the only two in the movie i would say giving real performances that are also funny hmm. um also michaela watkins has a small role and it is uh, it is criminal to put it michaela watkins yeah. is so talented and why did you put her in this one scene where she just yells at kids nothing 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's something I, I often feel like with, uh, I mean, actors or actresses, it's like, uh, in game night when you have Danny Houston being just like a random yeah. crime Lord who's just incredulous at, well, at, that, at the main characters. And that's it. That's you have Danny but, Houston. That's what you're doing with him. But I also feel like that I, I'll defend that because that character is supposed to be like, we hear a lot about him before we meet him. Yes. So it makes sense for him to be played by someone who is sure. Right. Even though most movie viewers probably don't know the name Danny Houston, they recognize right. that he has a big presence. And that kind of makes sense. Whereas here, Michaela Watkins is just playing like a Best Buy employee. Yeah. And it's like, it's not a big scene. Uh, hmm. it, yeah. And maybe it's it was sh- maybe. like, maybe it was a, like a big, like, standout scene and they thought like, Oh, this will just be a fun little standalone thing. And then they realize, Oh, right. We, we have to cut this down. So right. yeah, that's, that's possible. That's possible. All right. So it's time for you to talk finally. All right. So yeah, uh, I always feel, uh, you and I've had this conversation before that, uh, uh, I will find a way to feel guilty about anything. So, this month I have been, school is starting up and I'm basically building, not for col- not for the college classes, but for like the middle school and high school classes, uh, I'm helping to build up the curriculum from scratch, which takes a lot of time. And so it's that, I've been reading scripts, I've been doing a lot of stuff, uh, and I feel bad that I haven't been watching more movies, but almost invariably when I have taken the time to watch a movie, I'm, uh, I'm keenly aware that uh, there's other stuff that needs to be done. And so I will always find a way to feel bad. But anyway, uh, once school starts and uh, once I get back from Scotland, I think I will have, which admittedly isn't until late September, but uh, I think I'm going to have a fair amount of time to actually catch up on movies, thank God. Uh, But I did watch a film that you saw at Sundance, I believe, um, which was Blinded by the Light. Yes. Um, which is a film that I uh, really enjoyed. I don't it was think my it's... favorite film that I saw at Sundance, but no, yes, yes, it was my favorite. Which, on one hand, I think is strange because it's not a perfect film, but on the other hand, the stuff that it gets right, it gets so right that it, it it's able to tap into a certain emotional and experiential uh, quality that that you and. I and anybody who is into not even just music or film or art, probably anybody that's into anything, uh, just, they find something that, that really strikes a chord with them. It could be, you know, a musical artist and it's like, Oh, they really understand what life is about. Or it could be an activity, um, cooking, cooking, whatever it is. Uh, everybody, you know, most people I would say, and I, and I, feel bad for those that have not had this experience, but most people find this thing that I feel like it is uncharitable to call a hobby. Uh, but they find this thing that helps them make more sense of life. And when you have that moment, it is, you experience elation and you finally think everything else seems to kind of fall into place, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we have here with this character of, of Javed in the 19. He's a, uh, you know, he's, he's officially, he is English, but he, his family is from Pakistan and they definitely identify as that first, mm-hmm. uh, his dad, especially. Um, and, uh, and certainly there are, uh, others in the neighborhood that see him as that first. Um, but on top of that, he is also a creative person and his, his father doesn't, isn't particularly 
sympathetic to that. Um, and so he just feels like a, a man without a country. And then he stumbles upon Bruce Springsteen. Uh, this is the eighties and he just, the, the word, the, the music and the lyrics just really seem to echo what he is feeling. And, uh, and it just awakens him and, and he becomes in many cases, as we all were, uh, when we find this thing that we love, he becomes kind of obnoxious about it, <laughs> sort of tunnel, tunnel visioned about it. The kind of thing that if you knew him, you'd be like, okay, yeah, look, I'm glad you found something, but at the same time, it's not you know, it's not this for everybody. And thankfully the film does move on to a point where he realizes that everybody has their thing and that that's okay. Um, and so it, it really is, uh, it really captures that feeling, um, to such an extent that when I wrote my review, I spent the first paragraph talking about when I saw citizen Kane for the Mm -hmm. first time, which is something that, you know, at the time I'd heard it was great. I didn't know that it was characterized as the best movie ever made. And that it was a really, it was really unoriginal to say it was my favorite movie. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. I found that out in college. Thankfully. Uh, I say thankfully sarcastically by the way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just that movie. And then Orson Welles in general just really struck a chord. He and I were, you know, we're not that similar. Uh, and the movies that he makes are usually highly stylized and all that kind of thing. I don't see myself in those characters, but I see myself in the mood of the movies and the the very deep sense of regret that you find in those movies. Um, And everybody has something like that or hopefully many things like that. And the film captures that so well. I don't think it is perfect. I think that there are, I think it really short changes many of the supporting characters, except for the father. Uh, He, I think is, he's, definitely supporting he's not a co-lead but i feel like we've got javed we've got the father everybody else um with the exception maybe of javed's mother who is allowed some nice I, moments you're forgetting one of, my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie though which is javed's sister goes to the daytime rave which is a yeah, real thing this stranger he's he happens to be related to uh goes <laughs> no, to this rave and but uh i like I, that sequence i just don't respond to her as a character i see what you're saying but i like that that's in there that it's it's the the, the screenwriter and Gurinder Chada acknowledging that, like you said, it's not going to be Bruce Springsteen for everyone. For her, yeah. it's this, it's this music. Yeah. I, I recognize that's the thing is I feel like a lot of the supporting characters are there as a way to illustrate theme and not there of their own accord. Uh, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, but it didn't keep me from disliking the movie. Um, uh, yeah. Wait, it didn't keep me from liking the movie. Pardon me. Um, and it's a film that I really, really enjoyed. And uh, did you cry? No. Oh man, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a mess by the end of that movie. Yeah, it's. Uh, I no, I I. I felt the opposite. I, oddly enough, uh, it's possible for me to like cry from happiness when I see a movie, but it doesn't happen as much as, as regret and that sort of thing. And so, uh, by the end, I cry. I think that's mostly hmm. what makes me cry. Yeah, I guess I guess in movies like a certain mournfulness tends to be what what makes me cry uh, or something that, you know, if it taps into something more personal. Um, But no, more than anything, I just felt like, again, that sense of elation. And I think the film really by having it's not exactly I was talking about this uh, with our our friend uh, Aaron Newworth on his podcast. It's not exactly magical realism, but there are moments where they burst into song and dance. and, And you're like, this seems to be a fantasy sequence, but sometimes it's not fully 
yeah. explained away like that. Yeah. And I love that it's just like, yeah, this is this character's reality. This is the world he's living in now. It's a much more musical world. And as someone who's not even a big Bruce Springsteen fan, really at all, which is, I, I'm not. That's... It's nothing against him. I, no, but it's also, I know you. I don't understand how you're not a big Bruce Springsteen fan. There's something, I don't know. There's, I can appreciate what he's doing and I appreciate his lyrics, but I think there's just something about the way he, uh, the, his musical sensibilities that just don't, they never quite hit me right. Uh, I, I'm not going to say he's bad. I have no idea why I like the music I like and why I don't like the music that I don't like. Have you listened um, to the album Nebraska? Cause that's, yes. that is very much up. I would think, I would think very much up your alley. I know, but whether it be a movie, a play or an album, I don't really care for Nebraska or maybe the state itself. But what's the play? There's a right. play. I don't remember who wrote it, but I, okay. back in, back uh, at Columbia, uh, in my Columbia college, Chicago, that's the one, uh, we did not go to Columbia. Like. No, we, we got, we got schooled, uh, in a lot of, uh, uh, areas of life there. Um, but no, I was taking a directing class and we had to, and we directed scenes out of American Buffalo and a, a okay. play called Nebraska, which is not a bad play, but it's just trying too hard. I do like Nebraska. I've been there a couple of times. Um, anyway, yeah, uh, wait, we went to Nebraska. Yeah, but I'd been there once already. Yeah. Um, I was already, yeah, you're saying you're better than me. Yeah. I was already, uh, well-versed, <laughs> um, in the in the in the, s- the streets and sidewalks. Anyway, that's the film gave me uh, more of an appreciation for uh, Bruce Springsteen. That's for sure. But I, aside from a couple uh, songs that got just kind of stuck in my head, and then they just faded, and I wound yeah. up listening to the music I like. Um, well, I love that the movie starts with a Pet Shop Boys song. This movie about Bruce Springsteen opens with the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, and he's got this friend who's into the Pet Shop Boys. And uh, Gurinder Chadha at the at the Sundance screening uh, told a story of when she showed the movie to Bruce Springsteen. It was mm-hmm. like her and one other person of Bruce Springsteen in a screening room, and he sat in like in the front row of the screening room, and so she sat like one row behind him, but all the way to the side so that she could like see his sure. face uh, to try and see how he was reacting. And I, I guess he uh, the part when <laughs> I can't remember is it a poster or is it a t shirt that Javid's wearing that has Bruce Springsteen on it, and his friend goes. Who is that Billy Joel? And apparently Bruce Springsteen <laughs> cracked up. I could see at, that at that, uh, which is pretty funny. All right, let's move on uh, to a movie that I saw. Okay, I'm with you. Uh, hasn't come out yet. Uh, it's a um, and now I've forgotten. I think it's a Colombian film. It's called Monos, directed by Alejandro Landes, uh, and it stars. Um, well, it's not really important who it stars, but Julian Nicholson is the um, uh, American in it. Uh, you definitely know. Who yeah, I know is. that. I know who that is. Um, and, and yet I can't place her. And yet I'm suddenly having trouble saying, oh, you know her from X. She's been in a million things. Um, but uh, the movie is kind of like. Oh, OK. Yes. Yeah. OK. It, the movie is kind of uh, in, and I mean this in a good way. It's kind of all second act. Okay. Like, it just throws you in. We don't know what's happened. There's a remote outpost of child soldiers. Like, they're all teenagers. Um, tweens and teenagers, mostly teenagers. Um, with one adult, like, general, or, or I don't know, sergeant, maybe. Um, and they're in charge of this prisoner, who's an American doctor, played by Julian mm-hmm. Nicholson. Um and we don't know 
is there what year is this is there a war going on what is going on out here um and then for various reasons they end up having to leave their outpost and sort of move as a unit with julian nicholson across the countryside we still we never we get a a bigger sense of what is ongoing but not any really backstory or explanation it's really just this sort of mad warlike atmosphere so it's like um i guarantee that someone else has already made this comparison but it's kind of uh, Lord of the Flies meets Apocalypse Now. Okay. Um, I guarantee someone has said that. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and and so I I can't say that it's a movie that I will be eager to return to again. Sure. Um, it's not a very positive look. Uh, it's often very uh, harrowing um, and, 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 and cruel. Um but it's also really fully realized. Uh, it is, there's something really intoxicating about the fact that it makes no effort to explain how we got to this point. And it doesn't really have what you would consider a narrative ending either. It has a stopping point, but like you get the impression this story could keep going, Hmm. uh, if it didn't, if it didn't stop there. Um, you know, it's, there's no real sense of a, like, there are a couple of senses of main characters, but also I like that, uh, this isn't really a spoiler because I'm not giving anything the plot away, but the entire, like the end sequence is with a, it like is with a character who has been a minor character up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I mean. It feels like, uh, I guess it's just where they decided to stop it, but it's really ambitious. It's really beautifully shot. Um, and sometimes very, um, intense. Uh, there are some, uh, more violent warish sequences uh, that are um, have a bit of uh, beauty and danger to them at the same time. Uh, yeah, it's um, Monos. It's uh, uh, definitely not like. I mean, I just compared it to two things, but it's it it, it is a distinct, unique movie that is probably worth checking out but it's not also not gonna like end up on any lists for me i don't think uh but i'm glad i saw it okay i guess if that makes sense um and then what about the next one were you or are you glad that you saw the next film on your list i i I stretched that out so that you had time to drink oh uh, thank you some water um so next up now again this is the next and I don't know why I put this on my list, but I can tell you <laughs> these when are my, I put it. These are my favorites. I can tell you yours. when I put it on my list. Okay. The reason it was right after Christmas in Connecticut, I watched 1980s New Year's Evil. <laughs> um, uh, have you seen this? Uh, I think I might have seen it when I was a kid. Uh, well, your kids should not be watching this movie. Well, yeah, there are a lot of things that I watched when I was a kid that I shouldn't have been watching. It's a, it's a Golden Globus production. Yeah. Uh, which means it is lurid and trashy and violent. Okay, yes, I did see this. Okay, so uh, basically it's about a woman. I, I never got in a sense, is she a famous radio DJ? I, I couldn't, she's famous for something and I couldn't quite place Dis- what Disc jockey is, is what I remember. Okay. Or something like she's that. She's hosting yeah. a live New Year's Eve thing at mm-hmm. a club in Los Angeles. Oh, here we go. Okay, yes. Sorry, and the description says disc jockey specifically. Okay, yeah. Okay. So she's ho- she's hosting, and basically she keeps getting these the callers call in, and because they're doing it's it's Los Angeles, so they're doing a countdown. They're doing four countdowns. Mm-hmm. You know the 
they do, at 9 p.m. they do the Eastern Time, then they do Central, then Mountain. Yeah. And then, and so there's a caller who is uh, killing someone at each midnight and then calling in after and playing the tape of the, like he's recorded mm-hmm. audio of the murder and the implication is that he's getting closer and closer to the club and that the, the yeah. final person is going to be, if not her, someone at the, at the club. Here's uh, just a quick there. This is rushing back to me. I think I saw it with my brother. Okay. Uh, that's the thing about having an older brother. You watch sure. all kinds of stuff you shouldn't have seen. Um, that's probably true of my younger brothers. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, so, man, it's, I haven't thought of this movie and I didn't, I probably didn't even think about it at the time. Here's <laughs> when I was a kid, this is what I, I'd say 10. I was probably 10. Um, here's what I thought about that, that fact that like every time I remember thinking like, so there's only going to be four by the end. Like, I mean, I don't want my main character to die, but like if, if the killer kills someone else and it's like, all right, we made it, we made it through. I remember thinking it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> uh, well, he does kill others besides his four. Cause a couple times he has to, he like has one primer killing. Yes. Like okay. he kills someone right at the beginning. Like he's just like warming up, I right. guess. And then there's a couple times where he has to kill people to escape capture. Yes. Um, there's a great sequence where he uh, is so he's like trying to get because he's an obsessive serial killer. So he's trying to get to the next place he needs to be on time mm-hmm. and he's not paying attention. When he's driving. And he runs into uh, someone's motorcycle mm-hmm. and then he gets chased by a motorcycle gang through the Van Nuys drive. in it's it's a very much an L.A. movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Van Nuys drive in recently seen in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sure. Um, uh, and so he's like is. Yeah, getting chased around the Van Nuys Drive-In by bi- bikers. There's a lot of fun sequences. The, the movie is super trashy, super lurid, uh, and and yet uh, I I had the kind of fun with it you're supposed to have with a movie like this. Did you ever? Sorry, this. You know what? I, I'm not even going to mention this because no, you can it's, say it, I'm done. You can, all right, sorry. that like it's just it's so fascinating to hear you talk about this because I'm just I'm flashing back to just this moment in my life where it was just, you know, the golden age of slasher movies. And so I was, we were watching all this stuff. We, I watched the fun house, which is, which is a pretty good movie in itself, by the way. Um, April fool's day, which I have so much more appreciation for now. And then, um, new year's evil. And then there was another one, uh, my bloody Valentine. Um, like I saw all of these in a row, not to mention, and then sprinkled in with like various Friday the Thirteenth and that, that sort of thing, and they just uh, and they factored into like my drawings. Like I would, I okay. used to draw, and like eventually my parents got called in. You know, like I would draw stuff. My teacher f- would find it. It would be very bloody and gross. Yeah, uh, and then my parents got called in, and I was just like. I don't see what the big deal is here. And, uh, yeah, you had lame teachers. I, <laughs> I, I, was, so. I could never draw, but all my short stories were about like kids, my age, like getting disemboweled or getting their heads <laughs> yeah. chopped off or getting like thrown out of helicopters. Like I, that, that was all the stories that I wrote. No one ever called my parents. I, th- I genuinely, I think that there's a, vi- uh, there's a visceral response, you know, to being, to seeing right. like, pictures because yeah i i wrote stories i wrote my 60 page opus sasquatch when i was like 11 which is like bigfoot is alive and well and angry and he just kills everybody um and so uh and yeah that didn't get anybody's attention but my my 
gross drawings of like killers uh, disemboweling and cutting off heads and that sort of thing yeah. uh, really yeah. got people's attention. I wrote a story that was in retrospect, like, I, I was so young and I probably wasn't that familiar with slasher movies, but I think they're just uh, in the culture by then. Yeah. Cause this would have been like early nineties, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I wrote a story that was about, it was, took place on Halloween. I had not seen Halloween by this point. Okay. I was like not allowed to see R-rated movies. Mm. Uh, I'd seen a few that I had seen, you know, surreptitiously with, fr- with friends or whatever. Um, but I wrote a story about a guy who was going around on Halloween killing trick-or-treaters who were like all my age. Yeah. And like in retrospect, it's well, such a little sociopath because I wrote it entirely from the killer's point of view. It wasn't like I picked some heroes. I didn't have like a Jimmy Lee Curtis. Like, yeah. uh, I think eventually he did get killed in the end. Cause I kind of knew you had to kill the killer yeah. or whatever, but it was basically just, it was just a, 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 an episodic story about a bunch of different murders. I, when I was 13, yeah. When I was like 13, I wrote a story the name of which I cannot recall into insanity is what it was called. Yeah. And it was, and it was basically, yeah, it was told first person is about this. It was this guy who was in his thirties and he just told like these various chapters in his life when he was inconvenienced by someone and would respond by just killing them and didn't see what the problem was. <laughs> and then just, uh, eventually landed in uh, a mental institution and, uh, that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, so yeah. There were a couple of little, <laughs> little cretins. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a much uh, more positive movie. 1990, now okay when i watched it it was called that's the way i like it okay. letterboxd has it listed as forever fever hmm. but it is uh, a movie that takes place in uh in singapore in 1977 um uh, and it's about a uh young man who sees saturday night fever and becomes obsessed huh. with that's uh, interesting. What? Well, just uh, it's just an interesting uh, talking about blinded by the light, and now this oh, yeah. film, like, yeah, that's weird. I mean, that was yeah. yeah. So he becomes obsessed with disco dancing, yeah, um, and uh, winning a disco dancing competition and wooing the disco dancer girl. But he's also dealing with um, serious, like, sort of his younger brother is the he has a sister a younger sister and he's the oldest he has a younger sister and younger brother the younger sister is not married off he has a very traditional mm-hmm. family the younger sister is not married off yet the younger brother is in residency as a medical to be a doctor so the parents just love the younger brother and the other two siblings get no respect right. he you know the, our main guy works at a grocery store um and still lives uh with his parents um but then so yeah so a lot of it is him so he wants to join, learn how to dance to win the money at the dance, you know, standard sort of, yeah. um, uh, motivation, uh, you gotta save so, the rec center. Uh, yeah, something <laughs> like that. And so he gets his friend, a female friend, cause he needs a partner to come dance with him. She's to anyone who's ever seen a movie. She's clearly in love with him. Okay. But he has his eyes on the star dancer girl at the dance class. But then who I assume is a really nice person. Um, actually, no, she is. She is. But her boyfriend, ah, he's a bully uh, and he's a rich bully. Um, (laughs) it's the worst kind. Uh, yeah. Uh, but then, all right. Uh, curveball. Okay. The doctor, the favored son doctor 
comes out as trans and suddenly, yeah, I know. Right. And then suddenly the entire movie sort of, uh, is turned on its, on its ear because his relationship to his family is different. He goes from resenting his younger brother to, um, trying to be there for him because the parents want to disown him, uh, or sorry, her, um, uh, it, so it suddenly becomes a very different movie. Um, especially in 98. Like that's an interesting, uh, yeah. um, twist there. Yeah. I, I don't know. And maybe it's was more in the atmosphere in that part of the world. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and then there's also the other thing is before he was a John Travolta Stan, our main character was a Bruce <laughs> Lee Stan. So okay. he also knows a little bit of Kung Fu. Which, oh. uh, is that going to come into play? It does come into okay. play. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, this movie is very sort of, uh, it feels like a lot of American indies of the late nineties in the sense that it's like beat by beat and the way the characters are drawn and the way the story unfolds. It's actually a pretty conventional crowd pleasing movie. Yeah. It just has specific elements that are less salable. I so, right. you know, to, and so the fact that it's a very specific to very specific to Singapore and has this, uh, LGBTQ plot line. Yeah. Uh, is it, it feels like a lot of American Indies of, of that time. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and then, so where am I right now? I think I've you've got, got one, one more. more and then, yeah. uh, so this is a, a, a rewatch, my first rewatch watching. So, um, forever fever, or that's the way I like it. Um, it's the first Singaporean movie I've ever seen, but it made me want to go back and rewatch the documentary from last year, Shirkers, which is one of my favorite documentaries close to being, it was probably pretty close to being one of my honorable mentions on last year's Mm -hmm. top 10 list. Um, which did you see it? No, you would, you would, you would dig it. Um, it's, uh, do you know, do you remember what the premise of Shirkers is? I don't. So this, the, the filmmaker, Sandy Tan, when she was like 18 or 19, she and her friends made a movie in Singapore called shirkers. Mm -hmm. And then their like film school mentor teacher type guy who was kind of a, uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Svengali type to them. Um, and in retrospect, you know, she was 18 or 19. She didn't realize that in retrospect, also a total creep, Mm -hmm. uh, left the country with the footage and she didn't see him ever again. She never saw him again. And then a few years ago, a woman who turns out to have been this guy's widow. He went on and got married, remarried, uh, divorced. And he was already married at the time, got divorced and remarried. Um, and she is like, are you Sandy? Um, I have all of this film. So <laughs> for like 20 years, he just kept it. Didn't do anything with it, but he's, if he ends up, the movie ends up being as much about him, uh, as it is about her and the making of shirkers. um, but uh, he did destroy or at least lost all of the sound. So all she has is the pictures. Huh. And so she tells the story of the making of Shirkers and her relationship to George Cardona is his name and the his backstory and what became of him. And throughout it all uses footage from Shirkers, the unfinished film from 1992 or whatever, um, to tell the story. It's so great. That sounds great. It is so great. Um, I'm really glad that I watched it again. You should watch it. Uh, you, Tyler, and you at home should watch it. All right. You're up. All right. So uh, my next two movies are rewatches, and I try not to... I, I did rewatch other films, but... I've kind of I've made a rule for myself that uh, if it's a film that I've seen many times before, it's like what was the point of me talking about it? But this is a movie that I haven't seen in ten years. I'd only this is only my second time seeing it, okay. and that is The Hangover. 
Uh, oh. Jen and I watched The Hangover the other day, and we had not seen it in a very long time. Um, and... I remember loving it. It is, despite its sequels, and when I say despite its sequels, I'm, I'm leading to something else. I didn't see the sequels. But what I'm saying oh, is that, like, it is one of the films that movie people tend to point to when they talk about, like, original comedies mm-hmm. that are just pure comedy and that sort of thing. Uh, but at this point, it's 10 years old. It's not uh, as recent. It feels recent, but it really isn't. Yeah. Um, like, when you watch it and you realize, like, oh, this is the movie that really made Bradley Cooper and probably yeah. Zach Galifianakis. I remember, oh, sorry, I'm going to interrupt for a second. The 10 year thing. I remember being in high school and buying as a gift for my girlfriend, my high school girlfriend, the 10th anniversary VHS of Dirty Dancing. Hmm. And that movie seemed like it was already like a classic. But yeah. Because I was... 1617. Yeah. So to come out on a six or seven, like I didn't remember it. The movie had like already always existed as far as I knew. And it was 10 years old. Yeah. And now the movie that is like, there are movies that are 10 years old that I feel like I've just been meaning to get to. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, there are sure. movies that I'm like, like, Oh no, I didn't say like, Oh yeah, that's still my list. I'll still get to, yeah. uh, I mean, what Tropic Thunder is what, 11? That's 11 years old now. Yeah. 11 years old. I, and I don't like feel like that's a movie that I, I haven't seen Tropic Thunder, but it's like also on my list of things to see. I'll, just, yeah. I'll get to it someday. Yeah, which is entirely possible. Um, and it's definitely now that I'm teaching not merely college students, uh, students, but also high school students and middle middle school students. Um, the word old doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, you know, to me, anything pre-1960, I'm willing to accept that someone would call old. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it's, it's like that line in infinity war where Spider-Man says, did you ever see this super old movie called aliens? Yeah. And he's talking, not even talking about the first one. Uh, and it's like, yeah, of course to him it would be like, I, I, yeah. I try not to judge see, people about that anymore. But I, I, I yeah, I try. I, yeah. I always try to recognize this is on me. I need to be aware that, yeah. uh, you know, I need to be okay with aging. But, um, to me in general, if something's 25 years old, it's, it's okay to call it old. I guess so. So Pulp Fiction is old. That's an old movie at this point. I tend to, in, in anything before New Hollywood, just because I think for me it has to do with sensibilities. You know, right. like people now still watch Jaws and Star Wars and say, that wow, that and still enjoy it and still really enjoy it. But if they were to watch, say... Lawrence of Arabia, Bridge on the River Kwai, it would feel very different. But I think I mean, you're cherry picking the movies here. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, there are movies that made before that that felt different. Yeah. And then there are movies that were made after that that felt more classical in certain ways. Uh, but I tend to speak and think more generally. But anyway, uh, The Hangover. Um, right. So, in, yeah, I was just like, what was I talking about? Um, it's I mean it's it's hilarious. Uh, Jen and I laughed at different things this time than we did the first time. We still laughed at those things. Don't get me wrong, but the the yeah. one that got us so much that we paused it because we were laughing so hard we were crying. It's when that kid takes a photo of Zach Galifianakis in the police station. He kicks the kid's phone away, which already is kind of amusing. Yeah. The kids look the look on his face after <laughs> it's not shock. It's, it's not fury. It's just a certain type 
of incredulity. And like that actor, I looked him up. Uh, he hasn't really done anything since he was, you know, a child actor has gone on to other things. And I almost want to like seek him out somehow and be like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that. I don't know how you were capable of doing something so subtle yet. So on the nose at that age, Mm. it's hilarious. Uh, speaking of that scene though, RIP Brody Stevens. uh, Yes. Uh, Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, but there's stuff I, I haven't seen. I've seen it. Probably the last time I watched The Hangover was when The Hangover 3 came out, which is even that. Some while ago was, now. Uh, uh, yeah, what was that, 2013, 12? 13, I think. 2013? Um, uh, and even that, yeah, there is stuff in The Hangover that already that doesn't, I mean, the whole, the... <laughs> what they call Ed Helms when they pull up to his house. Like that's which you couldn't, you couldn't, you wouldn't do that in a movie now because it would immediately like you, you can't possibly be on that guy's side. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's how far it's come. Although admittedly, I, I'm never really on Bradley Cooper's side. Like I do see him as just a full on, I don't like to use a word, but douchebag and just an yeah. asshole. That's, I, I think that's, I think the film is, I think the movie knows. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that the studio or the average viewer sees it that way because Bradley Cooper is the hero of look I have this you've only seen the first one I have this oh sure this okay, breakdown yeah, yeah. That, that the hangover is Bradley Cooper's character's movie the hangover part two is Ed Helms character's movie and the hangover part three oh. is Zach Galvanakis' oh, character's movie um, uh, I, I defend all three uh, movies I know that puts me in a very small minority <laughs> yeah. of, of people that we know at least um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I just don't think that that movie would have, I don't think that that line, right. Even though it's probably true to the character, I don't think that extremely, line, yeah, I don't think that line would make it into a movie that Warner yeah. Brothers was releasing in uh, a comedy which, that's releasing in, in, in 2000 screens or whatever, which is, it is not in my view, like a knock on the film, obviously like some of the best comedies ever made, including the one that the, the usually the go-to is blazing saddles like that has so much for everyone and and not for everyone uh that i still think is funny and true to what true to the spirit of what he is doing um but what I, the thing that really struck me this time around is that I'm not uh, I'm not as familiar with Todd Phillips because I haven't seen the Hangover sequels. I did see Old School and The Hangover and Due Date. Um, so the two things that really struck me this time is how committed he is to ugliness, mm-hmm. which is something I think you've mentioned certainly with the sequels, but it's in here too. Yeah. Um, and then within that, I'm not going to say that his borderline obsession with the human body is Cronenbergian, (laughs) but it's not far off. Like the idea of just what the human body can withstand and just his commitment to making it as unattractive as possible. Yeah. Like playing up, the fact, you know, when we see uh, Matt Walsh's character, the doctor, and he is examining that older gentleman uh, who has to like drop his underwear, and you just, and he's like, and what's interesting is like that's not played for laughs. It's in I. It struck me as just like I felt pity. Yeah. Um. But like that's, and I'm sure some people would find it 
a sort of a gross out kind of laugh, but yeah. the movie doesn't play it as that. It plays it oddly matter of fact. Yeah. Um, and it's just very young is naked. Yeah. yeah. Is Heather Graham naked? She, uh, she breastfeeds at one point. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. like, even that, like Heather Graham's yeah. topless, but it's not the sexy scene yeah. at all. And yeah. then like, Zach Galifianakis like takes his pants off and he's just wearing a jock strap. So you see his ass hanging out. Um, and then, it, but then it's also stuff like, you know, Ed Helms, who I wouldn't say is like uh, a movie star, good looking or anything like that. But the, even the fact that like a character alters themselves, yeah. like he pulls his own tooth out. It's just, I don't know. It's just something that I, that, that struck me this time is how, ugly things get yeah. uh, over the course of the film but I do I still it, boy it, uh, in many way, in many other ways it holds up I think I have a deeper appreciation for it from a filmmaking standpoint yeah. than I did at the time are you looking forward to the Joker more now I was looking forward to it before um there are, I was talking with our friend uh, Jason and there are just from the trailer, there are things that seem a little bit too on the nose uh, but that performance and the idea that this guy it's like, okay, he is a director of comedy who's obsessed with ugliness and human frailty. If there's anyone that could make a really good Joker movie, that's it. You know, like that's the thing when it comes down to Christopher Nolan, he's pretty humorless, I'd say. And when doing the Joker, you need to try to, you need to sort of get into their mind, into his mindset. And I feel like Todd Phillips could. So I'm actually really looking forward to it. Me too. Uh, doesn't look like I'm going to be able to see it at TIFF, but it'll, it'll come out. Uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> One screening. That's uh, Phillips has gone insane. All right. Next up for me, I watched a documentary. This was kind of uh, preparation for TIFF because there's a movie playing at TIFF called The Whistlers that I plan to see, which is, I'm uh, hoping to see, which is directed by Cornelio Poromboyu, who made uh, made a movie maybe like six years ago called uh, Metabolism or When Evening Falls on Bucharest. But before that, he made what I consider one of the best films of the aughts, which is 1208 East of Bucharest. Yeah. And so I wanted to see. Uh, fill in the gaps and, and there's, there's still more I have to get to but fill in the gaps one I hadn't seen and so I watched a documentary he made in 2014 called The Second Game okay documentary is um being kind to this movie what it is and it's fascinating it's a, it's amazing how watchable it is because so Cornelio Poromboyu's father in the 1980s when Romania before the you know when Romania was still uh, under Ceausescu mm. and and all that um, was a soccer referee, and so the movie is just it's ninety minutes long because that's how long a soccer match is, and it is all you see is the televised soccer match between the army and police soccer teams, which he his father refereed, and then what you hear you, there's no sound of the soccer match. What you hear is him talking to his father about the game, about refereeing, about the time. And so, so you're so just like watching commentary. A com- yeah. You're watching a commentary track on a football match. Um, uh, and the match is played in the snow. So it's like very, it, it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of visually. It's very interesting yeah. uh, as well, but it's, but it's not as though it was shot to be for maximum visual beauty. It's no, they, like, so they actually talk about how there are, there are three cameras. There's one that's just perched at the top that just follows the action back up to mm-hmm. the main one. And there's someone on the sidelines who has a camera who can, uh, they can cut to him and he can zoom in on an indiv- mm-hmm. individual player, a star player or whatever. And they have another camera on the crowd, which is something that happens in professional sports here in the U S today, where basically any time there was, if something untoward would happen, if, if 
players would start scuffling or fighting or arguing, they would just cut to a shot of the crowd because they don't mm. want the at home viewer to to see that. They don't want to. And yeah, the professional sports still do that uh, today. Um, uh, but it has a very different tone of sort of misinformation yeah. when you hear the, the 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 father, the referee, talk about um, just the fact that he. Um, he's sort of very proud like that he was a good referee and never got like fired because especially when you're refereeing a game against the army and the police mm. is very easy to lose your job uh, over sure. it. Um, it was also very easy to get death threats over it or very easy to uh, be offered bribes. He actually says in this particular game, both sides offered him bribes uh, beforehand. Oh, wow. But, uh, and so, but it's not all like, um, what's what I'm looking for? Uh, sociopolitical like history like that a lot a lot of it is him just talking about the philosophy of refereeing a game um and when to you know there are parts where he's like he points out like a foul and he's like uh, and his and his son the director is like why did you know why didn't you yellow card him there and he's talking about like he doesn't see his like these are adults these are professionals his job is not to be the police his job is to keep the game going at a fair and easy pace. Mm. And, and so he would basically hold back on calling shit. If, uh, it would have disrupted the game too much to do. So it's, it gets into that <laughs> philosophy of, of refereeing, interesting, uh, uh, a soccer match. It's a fascinating, uh, movie. It's called the second game. All right. Um, why don't you ask me what we're going to watch next? David, you've been talking about a number of movies and I really feel like it's okay, been leading up, up to okay. Is the best movie that is coming out in theaters this weekend, and that is Ready or Not, directed by Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillett or Gillett, okay. or as they are known to their Legion of Internet uh, fans, Radio Silence. That's okay. what they uh, work under. Um, now, I don't blame them for that. Uh, for being going under going by radio silence instead it's of all those syllables. Matt Bettinelli, <laughs> Open, and Tyler Gillett. Yeah, uh, or Gillett. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing. I don't even know. What do you know about Ready or Not? I saw the trailer for okay. it, um, and it the trailer, well, the trailer seemed to explain quite a bit. Yeah, the trailer. Okay, this is a sidebar. Yeah, we need to just stop with red band trailers. Sure, red band trailers used to be. It used to feel like you know you could uh you had a little more it was about about leeway for like certain jokes or whatever you could put in there or whatever but now it's basically taking trailers which already give away too much of the movie and giving them extra real estate to give away more of the movie and so yeah there are so many deaths in that red band trailer uh by which i mean there's like two but it's two more than you need to for a movie with a relatively low body count, um, uh, it's watching that red band trailer after having seen the movie really bothered me. Uh, and I've been telling people that I've been recommending ready or not to, to, if you haven't watched the trailer, don't and just enjoy the movie. Now I had not seen the trailer. I had not seen anything, but a single production still of Samara weaving covered in blood and wearing what I thought at the time was an old timey dress. So I thought it was a period piece when I went in. Um, oh yeah. Uh, okay. But what I didn't realize is it's a wedding dress. It just doesn't look like a wedding dress because it's covered in grime, like John McClane's tank top yeah, yeah. by that point in the movie. Um, uh, cause she has bent to the ringer by that point. 
but yeah, so I won't go too much into into the plot. Uh, what I will say is the movie is an absolute blast. Um, it feels it's sort of it, it very it's very similar to Your Next in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, and I mean that in a good way, not in a derivative way. It's sort of. Uh, it's 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 your next with a uh, a sort of a dash of occult seasoning, um, okay. Uh, and it, so it's it's very funny. It's very bloody in a way that it's not. I mean, there are some that it's like the kind of bloody thing where you're like, where gore hounds are going to be like, oh man, that was awesome. But a lot of the bloody stuff is like squirmy stuff, like mm. oh that, like oh that hurts, you know, like there's. <laughs> Like there's, I'm not, I'm not one to look away. I, there's a, there was a part in the movie that I came very close to like, I don't know if I can keep looking. <laughs> okay. This is gross. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, and this looks, that looks very painful. Um, uh, and, and the movie just, it, it just, just doesn't let up. It's a, it's a very swift, like 95 minute movie. Uh, it's got a great cast. Samara Weaving is, yeah. is the lead, but it also has the the parents. Her in laws are Henry Zerny and Andy mm-hmm. McDowell. Andy McDowell, yeah. um, and her uh, new brother in law. She just got married. That the movie opens with the wedding. Um, new brother in law is played by Adam Brody, and he's the alcoholic fuck up. And he's the he's to keep going with the your next comparisons. He's kind of the Joe Swanberg character, except he gets a better arc, oh, you know? Okay. Um, and he's minor foolish sticks around a little bit longer than the Joe Swanberg. Got it. Um, I guess Joe Swanberg does make it pretty far into your next, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. I, he admittedly, he's passed out for a good portion of it. Yeah, that's right. That's something. Um, and then, um, but then you've got the actor. And I forget, I forget his name. Uh, cause I haven't seen him in that much stuff. Um, Christian, Oh, what is his name? Brune? Christian Brune. He's super funny as well. Uh, yeah, the, it, the, the premise has to do with games. This family, this rich family she's married into has made their fortune selling card games and board games uh, going back hmm. to the 1800s. And, that, and so there's a game sort of feeling to the movie of because the premise is a game. It's a game of hide and seek. That's where the yeah. you're not comes from. Um, but it's obviously a deadly game of hide and seek <laughs> uh, to put on my Pat LaFontaine voice. Um, wait, is that his name? What is that? Pat LaF- what is Don. It? Don LaFontaine. Yeah. Uh, Pat LaFontaine is probably someone else. Um, you're thinking Pat O'Brien. Uh, no, I'm not. I never oh, okay. do. Uh, yeah, why would you? <laughs> But then the other thing that I uh, want to point out, and you got at this a little bit uh, on a recent episode, must have been on a tangent because we didn't do an, do an episode about this, but the sort of social allegory sure. of the movie, that this has a lot in common with Get Out. Um, where Get Out is more about race, and this is more about uh, uh, economic class, because like mm-hmm. I said, these people are generations of wealth. Her character is an orphan who grew up in the, fo- in the foster system. She come, she came from nothing. Hmm. Um, and so, but both get out and ready or not are in essence movies that are ab- uh, about people who have inherited power and privilege and will go to great lengths to not let go of it. Right. Um, uh, which is very much in the air. We talked about the movie, the intruder, uh, of, uh yeah. a, a month or, or two ago. Um, does very much in the air. I would say this one, I'm not going to go as far as to say this movie is subtle about it. Uh, there's not really anything subtle about ready or not, but it's also, it's probably less, um, 
less straightforward an allegory than than Get Out is. Um, but uh, I, I I can't wait. You are going to love. Ready I have no doubt. Uh, um, it, it is up your alley. And I will say, uh, I think I I don't remember if I mentioned this on the show, but I told you. Um, so this last uh, last semester, I guess spring semester, um, when I was. Um, teaching the after school program with those middle schoolers uh their final film was called ready or not and it's about a deadly game of hide and seek and hide yeah hide and seek hide and seek when i was a kid i i remember uh it was called hide and go seek Oh. Like, I remember kids no, calling can, it that. No, that sounds about right. Yeah. I've heard, I think um, I've heard that, too. But, uh, so, when we... But uh, then uh, what happened was, Justin Timberlake came along, he said, lose the go. There you go, yeah. Uh, but I was, so there, when we, at the end of the year, we had this big uh, festival where we, where, like, the different schools played their film, and so when it came time for Ready or Not to come up... Um, it involves one kid like killing, like finding and killing all these kids, and he just stabs them with this uh, stick. Uh, and then we got this really horrible sound effect for the stabbing. And so around like the third kid, so like all the kids are sitting up front. I'm back with the adults, and they don't know that I'm a part of it. Uh, and so the th- after the third kid gets killed, there's a guy right behind me that just goes, "Jesus," and, and I, I want to be like, "Yeah, you're damn right, Jesus." Uh, this seems to be the theme of this episode is kids are little monsters yeah um and we'll get to more of that uh in a second but okay. first i have to talk about ugh. uh <laughs> it's coming out in a few weeks i feel like and i, I said this to our um the editor at large scott and i the other, the other night um that i sometimes i feel like i seem to be like i'm taking a bullet because like, sure. go to these press screenings so I can review these things. But he was like, you're really doing it to yourself. No one cares if we review these movies or not, but it's these, again, these biographical documentaries, oh, There's okay. a million of them. Yes. And so I went to see a movie called where's my Roy Cohn. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's a different, it's different than the, like the RBG school of lame sure. uh, documentaries. And that one's very, pandering in the sense that it's like a hagiography it's a puff mm-hmm. piece right this is the opposite this is a movie that is again 90 something minutes of uh, eviscerating Roy Cohn's uh, uh, his legacy his personality no. and I'm not, I'm not sitting here telling you oh the movie's unfair to Roy Cohn like, right. the guy the movie is very clearly made to draw a direct line between Roy Cohn and his tactics of insisting um, on your being right no matter what the evidence yeah. or is about saying crazy shit to change the ar- ar- argument. Uh, it's called a direct line from Roy Cohn to Donald Trump. The problem is that it does that pretty effectively in five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And it's just another 85 minutes of... And this is why... I, I haven't written my review yet, but this is what I wrote in my little like screening notes, is that... If I were a Donald Trump supporter, this movie would only strengthen my convictions because it is so barefaced and attack. Yeah. That, and, and it's also so full of speculation and conjecture about stuff like stuff that is I, like probably true. But when they talk about, I mean, I mean, certainly the fact that Roy Cohn was gay mm. is that's pretty well documented. He never yeah. 
said as much or came up with like it, that's that's pretty well documented but then there's all the speculation about like well he did this because of this you know because he was gay right. of, and like that it, it opens up a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of speculation that I'm like this is if I wanted to if I were a person who were interested in poking holes in the argument of this movie, yeah. you're giving me plenty of reason to do it because the movie seems constantly to be full of shit. Uh, even when I know it's not, it just has this smug superficiality to it. I couldn't stand it. Well, and that's, did you ever see citizen Con? Uh, no, it was him too. Yeah. It was an HBO, uh, movie starring James Woods. Uh, and it was made in the early nineties, I think. And so I, I rented it when I was a teenager cause I knew nothing about it, but it sounded interesting to me. Uh, and it's, and it's interesting. It's, it, it's curious to go back to that word that you and I used uh, with about vice, which is say, oh yeah, in that it's not, yeah. and it sounds like this documentary is not. And I, I'm fine. I don't think every movie absolutely positively needs to be, but at the same time, like if you're just going to be like, hey, this person you don't like, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't think of vice because this is it, it's not as unwatchable as vice because <laughs> um, Matt Turnauer has made good movies before he made mm. um, the documentary probably three years ago um, called Citizen Jane Battle for the City um, which is about uh, the way that um, uh, and it happened big time in Los Angeles when certain ways of thinking about city planning took over and people started building freeways but right. housing projects and stuff like that and even after even after all the data and research and the numbers and the science was saying, oh, this is worse. This is bad for the city, bad for crime, bad for uh, pollution, bad. Mm-hmm. there was so much money now tied up in it that people kept doing it. And Citizen Jane, I can't remember her last name now, was a sort of uh, a crusader who tried to yeah. put a stop to these. Anyway, that was a... Well, uh, he's sympathetic to her, so uh, he likely is going to yeah. delve deeper into that um so yeah i like that movie and so i was kind of i walked i went into where's my roy cone a little bit like with a little bit of hopes up but uh no don't don't go see that you already you know donald trump's a monster you don't need a movie yeah to tell you that anyway um read the wikipedia entry you'll you'll be fine there you go all right uh final movie for me is another rewatch a movie i was i call it a rewatch okay because i've seen it many many times before but I've never seen it like this, Tyler. Okay. Because this is for the first time available on Blu-ray in HD. Right. Philip Ridley's The Reflecting Skin from yeah. 1990. One of a my fi- favorite movies of all time. It is a film that I have heard you talk about for many, many years. Yeah. Have um, you seen it? Uh, no, I haven't. But you bought, or you, uh, you were also sent to review the... Yes, but I'm not going to be reviewing it. I'm giving it to my resident horror guy. Um... Because yeah. I thought, because I thought he it would is f- classified as horror. Yeah, I, I would not consider it a horror movie. And that's has, the thing: the fact that it comes at it from this other angle, I think he would find more interest. I still find it interesting, but I yeah. think he'd find it interesting. But the premise of the movie, and this makes it sound a little bit horror-ish, but it's not really, uh, is that it takes place in somewhere in the, a plains state uh, like Oklahoma or Kansas or something uh, in the mid 1940s and you've got this young uh, boy who lives on in the middle of nowhere this tiny like uh, it's not even really a town it's just a collection of farmhouses mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, he becomes convinced that this woman who lives down the road played by Lindsay Duncan 
who was a, a British woman who was a widow. She married an American, moved to this town, and then he almost immediately died. And so she's kind of this like fish out of water in this small town. Uh, she talks weird. She looks weird to, to at least to, to, to young Seth. Um, he becomes, he and his friends become convinced that this woman is a vampire. Hmm. And then his brother, older brother played by Viggo Mortensen comes home from the war. He's been, he's seen some shit. He ends up taking solace in this similarly sort of like traumatized, um, lonely woman. And they have started a relationship. And so young Seth is panicking and he's like, I got to save my big brother from this vampire, (laughs) which sounds in a way like that could be, uh, Goonies esque. Yeah, that description. That is not what this movie is. No. It is, um, which is not to say that it's not funny. It is sometimes very funny in a very strange and dark uh, way. I'm trying. I try to avoid uh, um, overusing the term Lynchian when I talk about mm-hmm. the reflecting skin because that's what a lot of people go to. But there are some very David Lynch type of touches. Um, uh, but the uh, I watched the making of documentary, the, the cinematography, which is by Dick Pope. Oh, um, nice. Who's yeah, done a lot of great stuff. The cinematography is all, um, uh, inspired by the paintings of Andrew Wyeth. Uh, and you know, everyone knows, I forget what it's called now. The one Andrew Wyeth painting, which is the like wheat field and the girl laying it with her back to the person in the house off in the distance. Oh yeah. You know okay, what I'm talking yeah, yeah. about? Um, uh, I can't remember what the name of that painting is called. Uh, anyway, um, so it's yeah, it's absolutely beautiful cinematography. It looks great in in HD. Um, uh, it's it, the movie is so up my alley in its sort of it's very American Gothic. In fact, apparently that was the screenplay's title. Hmm. Um, um, and yeah, so I, I I I gave you the basic outline of the plot, but I haven't mentioned the uh, mummified fetus that, uh, the, that Seth thinks he's an angel. And I haven't mentioned the roving band of, uh, child molesting and murdering greasers. Like there's, there, you, you didn't mention that. I feel like I would have remembered. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of dark, odd stuff. Um, Viggo Mortensen and Lindsay Duncan are incredible. Jeremy Cooper, who plays Seth Dove is, I don't think by, and by most of our standard metrics, I don't think he's a good child actor. He's, mm. um, uh, you can kind of see the strings of his performance, but he's also not, um, you can see that he's acting, but you also see that he's not making the same choice as any other child. actor. He still right. has a very, he has a unique presence. He also has a very distinct look to him partially because Philip Redley had him dye his hair black. Same with Viggo Mortensen. Both have jet black hair. Um, and so he's got this little, do you say cherubic or cherubic? Cherubic is how I've, yeah. So Jeremy Cooper has this cherubic face, but this jet black bowl cut on top of it that makes him look like there's something sinister. And like, he's a super cute kid, but also like we were talking about the rest of this episode, the movie is aware that kids are monsters. Oh yeah. The opening <laughs> scene is with him and his friends, uh, playing a prank on Lindsay Duncan's character that involves torturing and killing a frog. Huh. It's, <laughs> it's, it's brutal in some ways. Um, but the movie is also like when I talk about the, the Gothic part of it, and the thing that sp- spoke to me when I was, when I first saw it when I was 18 and speaks to me now is the way that the movie is constantly juxtaposing horrible, cruel, terrible things and overwhelming beauty constantly. 
it has, I, and I noticed this, I don't think I've ever really thought of this before. This movie has one of the single, my single favorite cuts ever in a movie. It's the Lawrence of Arabia okay. of, uh, 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 of weird Lynchian Gothic, uh, stuff in which, um, so the boy's father has committed suicide by dousing himself in gasoline, including drinking some gasoline and then lighting himself on fire. Oh. And in doing so, he has also burned down the garage that he owns. Uh, the gas station rather it's a gas station slash garage. Um, and so it's nighttime and Seth is watching this burning garage, which is also like has a dead father in it. Mm. And there's, it's nighttime. Like I said, and there's these embers coming off the, the, uh, the, the fire. And Seth starts like kind of smiling and like, like blowing at them. Like they're fireflies. Like he's Mm. like playing with the embers. And then there's one where he almost a camera goes like, and then it cuts to the next day and just the wind blowing the cornfield, like the, the wheat fields. So, you know, that, that, and then like, it's truly like Lawrence of Arabia at that point. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's uh, it's so dark and, and so beautiful, and the movie is constantly like that. You've got some great uh, monologues um, from uh, both Viggo Mortensen and, and Lindsay uh, Lindsay Duncan. Uh, Lindsay Duncan has a monologue on aging that is terrifying and beautiful. Um, uh, Viggo Mortensen's character has a monologue about the aftermath of the atomic bomb, uh, because he was stationed in the, in the Pacific, uh, um, uh, that is equally like, obviously in the wake of destruction, like finding things that are beautiful in mm-hmm. what's happened to, it's very, very disturbing, very beautiful. And I'm so glad that film movement classics, uh, undertook this, uh, um, new this new uh remaster restoration whatever it is and put out uh this blu-ray i'm so glad that this movie um exists uh on blu-ray it's uh, it really is one of my favorite movies of all time i've got a triple feature in mind okay based on what you said okay you got your reflecting skin uh-huh you got your north fork which i've never seen and Bergmeister harmonies oh okay so you leave, you you steer out of America for the last one. Yeah. Um, and you just go again, like ugliness, but also beauty and, uh, this very meditative melancholy, uh, tone. You should see more uh, North Fork. I, it's some people uh, love it. Some people hate it. I'm, I'm on the I side never of saw loving Twin Falls, it. Idaho. I saw that. I never saw North Fork, yeah. but I saw the astronaut farmer <laughs> yes, and I kind of liked it. <laughs> I have to admit, I liked the astronaut farmer. So I guess I like the Polish brothers. Uh, in fact, I remember this coming like, uh, back when I, still cared about superhero movies um i was i think i made the case on this podcast that the polish brothers should make a superman movie that sure. they would be the kind of uh the the right f- version of americana like to 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 do that um anyway uh i thought like there was something else that i was going to say oh yeah um i might have already said this did i say it was shot in canada uh, i don't think so okay so yeah it takes place very much clearly in the u.s is mm-hmm. very clear united states symbolism uh but yeah it was shot in uh, outside of calgary and in the in the in the making of uh documentary vegan mortensen uh, is talking about it was this tiny remote town and he's like if those people knew what we were doing <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very funny yeah. um okay 
Uh, okay, so my last film, once again, this is a rewatch. It's been a while since I've uh, watched it. I don't know if this is a film you've seen, which is uh, My Dinner with Andre. Oh, yes, I've seen my You have seen it, okay. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, this is one of my favorite films of all time, uh, and it's one that... Um, I, Jen and I, I've mentioned this before. We currently have a, a tenant who is here for for three months, and uh, I'm helping him with uh, some writing that he's doing while also recommending movies to him. And so that would that are relevant to the script that he's writing. And, and so one of the movies that I recommended was My Dinner with Andre. And uh, sure enough, once he started watching, I was like, well. <laughs> what am I going to do? Not, not watch this. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is just, it is so counterintuitive because it's two guys sitting at a restaurant talking and you would think that wouldn't be very interesting or I'd say you could be forgiven for thinking that would not be visually interesting, that it'd, just, it'd be all about the actors and you'd be like, all right, it's not going to be that dynamic but it's still shot in a very dynamic way the way uh the director's uh, uh louis mal um the way that he uses close up the way that uh the camera it's not like it's constantly moving but sometimes we we uh, shoot the characters from the back um and out there uh, it's been so long since i've seen it but like some of the walls of the restaurant have mirrors on yeah them, right so that yeah. you get some visual depth uh, out of that yeah he definitely yeah. finds a way to make it visually interesting without making it without it seeming like he's trying to make it visually interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there's a, uh, I've heard the assumption on people's part that, uh, this is an adaptation of a stage play, but it was written and developed yeah. for, for the screen. Yeah. Uh, it's a um, movie through and through, which, you know what? I think probably explains why it's so visually dynamic. I, I'm a big fan of the, the film adaptation of American Buffalo, but it definitely does feel like someone either it feels too stagey or it feels like, uh, the director is trying really hard not to make it stagey. Either way, it feels like it is defined by that limitation. Whereas this one was conceived of as yes, as you said, as a movie. Um, and, uh, so it's visually interesting. The two performances are fascinating and it just, uh, I, I was reading some reviews afterwards and so many people said like, this is the type of, you know, you're involved in, in this conversation and you've, you've had these types of conversations with your friends when you, you probably when you were younger and certainly if you're more, uh, more of a creative person, you'll delve into this sort of thing. Um, I myself, it's our, our friend Jason, he and I go to Denny's basically every week and we talk for about three hours and it's conversations much like this. Um, but what I love about it is that you have these two guys who have very different outlooks, uh, on life and they're saying very, uh, this, if there is like, if there are like four principles that we constantly espouse on this podcast, uh, one of them is obviously that don't underestimate how important sound is. Uh, and then I can't think of what the other two would be, but I'm sure they're up there. But one one has got to be, there's something you can say in cinema that you can't say in genre. Sure. That's something that we stole from our, uh, Ron Ron Um, but one of them that we say over and over again is that you would think that specificity would actually limit, uh, audience relatability, but it actually doesn't. It's, I felt this way with, uh, blinded by the light that it is so specific Mm -hmm. to Bruce Springsteen that I couldn't find, I couldn't help but find myself thinking about Orson Welles, you know, and, and my version of that, um, because emotionally there was a universality to it. And so here you have these very specific stories, these very specific outlooks, these very specific characters. And yet, uh, you feel like 
you can relate to them partially because just because of the type of conversation they're having and what they're saying is itself really fascinating, really entertaining and quite profound. And it's just such a it's it's such a marvelous film. And uh, listeners, if 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 I said, yeah, it's just two guys sitting, having a conversation even if even if you're familiar with the director and you know what he's capable of, mm. even if you're familiar with the actors and you know what they're capable of, you might instinctively feel like that sounds like a slog. First off, it flies by. Yeah. Um, and, and you're just totally engrossed by it, just like you would just like you would be any conversation that you're a part of or an interesting conversation that you've heard that you, you feel like you're a part of it because they're making you think what would you say and wh- how are you reacting to what they're saying as though you are the third person at the table it is a, just a, a yeah. marvelous film it's a, uh, what struck me when i finally saw it which at this point has been by more than 10 years maybe um is that i had always assumed that it was like a real two-hander but wallace Shawn is clearly the lead Yes. And as much as the, this takes place in a sort of like, you know, erudite literary New York milieu, his anxieties are very uh, relatable. The, the yeah. idea of having friends who are making more money than you are more successful in the field yeah. than, than you are and the insecurities that come from that um, is such a great way in. And the fact that that's ends up being a part of the arc in a way. And he, he has this wonderful, and there's, there's uh, certainly early on a heavy use of voiceover mm-hmm. in which he's contextualizing everything we're about to see. Um, and one of the brilliant, and he's also telling us about himself. And one thing that he says that I love is that, you know, I grew up in a affluent home and all I thought about was, was the arts and writing plays and acting. And now that I'm doing that, all I'm thinking about is money. <laughs> and and I've, I'm like, boy, you know, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily from an affluent family, but we definitely did okay. Like we were in the suburbs and all that sort of thing. Um, and like so many other creatively minded people in that situation, I, because I didn't have to worry about where my next meal was coming from or anything like that, or paying the bills that freed me up to think about these other things. And now that I'm an adult and I'm trying to work in some capacity within those things, I'm just like, yeah, that's all well and good. But I'm very aware of this bill coming up, you know, and uh, it's just listeners. I can't say it enough. Check out my dinner with Andre.